You know, some families have heroes. Sometimes a celebrity, sometimes someone who's well-known or well-liked, a high official, maybe a valiant soldier. We love being associated with people like that, even if it's not a family member. We like to name drop someone we know or we meet. Uh, my social media profile picture is a picture of me and a current U.S. Senator, and I like to say, hey, I met this guy. There's no family that's perfect. In fact, most families are far from perfect. I think it would be safe to say that we could all think of that family member, that relative, that you often wish was not part of your family. Maybe you have a crazy aunt or uncle who is brash and abrasive or drinks too much or lacks social graces, someone you wish you weren't associated with. And it's that one weird, obscure, invasive, wretched character that mars your otherwise wholesome and happy family. Maybe it's someone in your ancestry who was a bad person by human standards, a felon, a criminal, an adulterer. You just rather not think about their existence in your lineage. In the book of Genesis, the human character that receives the widest and most detailed amount of attention is Joseph, the son of Jacob. There's 12 chapters in Genesis that unfold for us the story of Joseph, how he was Jacob's beloved son, how his brothers sold him, how he ends up in Egypt, how he's propositioned by his master's wife, how that lands him in prison, how he interprets dreams, how he rises to power, how he becomes the right-hand man to Pharaoh, and how he saves the Egyptian empire and saves his family as a result, and then is reconciled to and forgives his brothers. That's 12 chapters of Genesis, almost a quarter of the entire book of Genesis. We like the Josephs in our family. We wish we all had that Joseph, that valiant guy that we can look to say, I'm related to that guy. But the story of Joseph, it begins in Genesis chapter 37, um, the beloved son of his father, as I said, sold into slavery. And then we come into Genesis chapter 38. The author does an interlude with the story of Judah, the fourth-born son of Jacob. Now, this story may seem curiously out of place, why this really bad story of Judah and his sinfulness and this sex and prostitution. It's a very unpleasant story that you may wish was not a part of the good book. But I want to convince you today that this story is incredibly important to the book of Genesis and to the Bible as a whole and to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Genesis 38 is not a terribly long passage, but it contains a lot of elements and information, and I want to make sure that you don't miss certain things, and so we'll split up our reading in a couple parts. So I want to read for you the first 11 verses, and we'll do the other sections later. Uh, beware, there's some tough stuff in here. Genesis chapter 38, verse number 1 through 11. Let me read it for you. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 32 of your pew Bible. The word of God says to us, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and called his name Shelah. Judah was in, in Kezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. 
Then Judah said to Onan, go into your, into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring to your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Okay, how many people forgot that story was even in the Bible? Um, intense story, right? So here's your outline this morning. Point number one, family, family dynamics. Point number two, family dysfunction. Point number three, family deception. Point number four, family deliverance. So dynamics, dysfunction, deception, and deliverance. Let's pray. Uh, our gracious God, thank you for your word. For we know that um, your word is um, inspired by your Holy Spirit, passed down, preserved for us, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work, that we might serve you, that we might know you through your word. So, Father, we ask that in this text you would reveal to us the grand theme of the scripture, which is Jesus Christ. Um, I pray that this message would not be hindered by the insufficiency of the messenger, but that it would go forth in the power of your spirit. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. When we read a story in the Bible, we must generally follow a proper procedure if we're going to study it rightly. The procedure I would recommend is simple. Exposition, interpretation, and application. So exposition is like shining a light on the story, figuring out all the characters, the elements, the situations of the story. Secondly, interpretation is a task of figuring out how all the parts fit together to bring meaning out of the story. What does it all mean? And finally, application is saying, what do I do with this? How does this information benefit or change me? Why does God want me to know this? So my, my objective when preaching is, and I want you to hold me accountable in this, is that I want to expose the text clearly, I want to interpret coherently, and I want to apply correctly. So point number one, family dynamics. Judah went down from his brothers, makes friends with a guy named Hira and a Dulamite. These are the people of the Canaanites. Uh, and he marries the Canaanite woman. He has three kids, her, Onan, and Shelah. Verse 1 says, it happened at that time. At what time? The author is connecting the story of chapter 38 back to the preceding story of chapter 37. Judah leaves his family. He makes a new friend. He marries a Canaanite. It happens shortly after the sons of Jacob have sold Joseph uh, to the Midianite traders. You're supposed to see the connection there. Why does Judah leave his brothers, his family, his community, his father, his estate? And we learn in chapter 34 that Jacob was such a wealthy man that he was the envy of the people around him. Why leave all that? Why wasn't everything nice and comfortable for Judah? Well, no, actually it was not. So they've sold their young, youngest brother in chapter 37, 17-year-old Joseph. This created a conflict among the brothers because they wanted to kill him at first, but Reuben said, let's throw him into a pit, and he intended to rescue him later. Then Judah, 
a very enterprising young man, decides that they should sell him to a caravan of traders. Let's make some profit off of the boy. No concern for where he'll end up, if we'll ever see him again, or if the circumstances he ends up in will be too much for him to bear. Let's sell him. Let's make some money. So Joseph's gone. Reuben can't rescue him. And they take the garment of Joseph and they dip it in goat's blood and show it to their father so he thinks a wild animal has devoured Joseph. Imagine the turmoil that that level of hatred and envy and conflict and conspiracy creates in a family. Jacob is perpetually grief-stricken as a result. He's inconsolable. It says in chapter 37, verse 35, all his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. Now imagine Judah living in this family, how stifling and depressing it would have been. And to know that you were partly the cause of that. And the text says, at that time, Judah leaves. He makes a friend, Hira, the Adulamite. He marries a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua. Okay, marrying a Canaanite, that's the problem. Why? Because she's not Hebrew. She doesn't believe in the same God as the Hebrews. She doesn't have the same central ideals and values as the Hebrews. She, she's part of a pagan people with detestable religious practices. I want to be very clear, however, that we're talking, uh, we're not talking about interracial marriage, which is never forbidden in the Bible. We're talking about interreligious marriage, which is by explicit command, an example always forbidden in the Bible. Uh, Judah might have known from his grandparents, Isaac and Rebekah, or from his parents, Jacob and Leah, or from his uncle Esau, how much Grandpa Isaac and Grandma Rebekah hated the fact that Esau married two Hittite women. The scripture says at the end of Genesis 26, when he married the two Hittite women, that they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah says to Isaac at the end of Genesis 27, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women, what good will my life be to me? She says, if my son marries among the Canaanites, I'm as good as dead. Judah should have known this. So the text is setting you up to recognize this pattern, intermarrying with, with the Canaanites to highlight the fact that Judah is making some bad choices here. So he's married. He has three kids, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. If you're curious, their names mean watchful, strong, and prayer. Then in verse 6, it says that Judah took a wife for his son Ur, as would have been the custom then. Her name is Tamar, and she's presumably also a Canaanite. Uh, we can figure that out because when she returns home, she goes back to the Canaanites and their practices. And so that's everything we need to know about their family dynamics. That gives us the context and the characters of this story. Secondly, point number two, family dysfunction. Judah's firstborn, Ur, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death, verse 7. Um, we're not told what Ur might have done. There's not enough clues to speculate. I want you to know, however, that the Jewish uh, rabbis, their tradition, they draw a strong parallel between Ur and Onan and what they did. Uh, namely, they say that he refused to impregnate Tamar for a variety of reasons. That's a, a strong assumption among the rabbinical commentators. However, I believe that's unclear from scripture or we cannot say definitively. His wickedness doesn't even have to be something to do with his wife Tamar. He, he could have been a drunk, an adulterer, a corrupt businessman, whatever. The point is he's doing something, he's being some way, he's practicing or promoting something that kindles the anger of God and he suffers judgment as a result. God takes his life. 
For the scripture says that God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons. Verse 8, Judas says to his second son, Onan, to take his sister-in-law, Tamar, as his wife, and to have kids with her. He calls this the duty of a brother-in-law. This strikes us as very weird and uncomfortable, so we need to understand some things about this culture and the practices of the ancient Near East. It would have been the practice that a woman who is widowed prematurely would have been married by her brother-in-law or another close relative of the deceased husband to produce male offspring for her. Why? There's four reasons I'll give you. First, to carry on the name of the deceased. For the firstborn son of the union would bear the name and have the legal status of the deceased man. Secondly, if there was inheritance involved, such as land or wealth or agriculture, the child born in the name of the deceased could inherit it in the place of the deceased. Thirdly, the child would be expected to take care of and provide for his widowed mother when he's of age. Fourthly, it's the right of the woman who has left her family to become part of her husband's family to be joined to him and his people and take on his name and identity. It's her right to get children out of the deal. That's the theme of the book of Ruth. This practice is called leveret marriage. It comes from the Latin lever, which means brother-in-law. So simply marriage to one's brother-in-law. Uh, and while it may seem uncomfortable and awkward and untenable in our modern world, you must understand that, that to the people of the ancient world, to die childless and to have your name not passed on to the next generation was, was unthinkable. So this was their practice to mitigate that potential tragedy. This practice was codified in the Law of Moses 400 years later when the children of Israel come into the Promised Land. It's in Deuteronomy 25. It would have been a great shame for someone to refuse this duty. It would have been considered a high and lamentable selfishness worthy of public humiliation. And there's public humiliation prescribed as a punishment for anyone who refuses to um, do this duty in Deuteronomy 25. You know, in our world, sex is seen as the end goal of certain human relationships, the objective of the impulses of attraction or romantic chemistry. But if you notice in this passage, there's at least three obligations in Judah's request to Onan to take his brother's wife. The first one is to obey his parents. Judah told him to do something. Secondly, it's to fulfill his obligations to his family, to raise up seed unto his deceased brother. And thirdly, to fulfill his social and cultural obligations, to do this duty for your brother's wife. Sex then for them is a means to a whole host of, of, of objectives that we don't normally think about in our world. But see, Onan is a sneaky guy. Onan wants the benefit of the physical relationship with Tamar, but he refuses to impregnate her because he doesn't like the idea that a son conceived of this union would not be his. Now, let's consider what may be going on in Onan's head in verse 9 and 10. It says he knew the offspring would not be his, and he took this precaution not to impregnate her so as not to give offspring to his brother. So first of all, he doesn't like the idea that in name and by legal status, the child would have the status of being Ben-Ur, son of Ur, instead of Ben-Onan, son of Onan. But Onan, 
You'll still be the father biologically, emotionally. You'll still raise the child, still have a father-son relationship. This child will still call you dad. Not good enough for Onan. Secondly, there could be a consideration about inheritance here. Let me try to explain this. See, Judah had, had three kids. Ur was the firstborn. Ur, presumably, as the firstborn, would have gotten a bigger share of the inheritance. So let's say Judah has three sons. He would divide his inheritance up into four parts. Ur would get two parts, and Onan and Shelah would get one part each. That means Ur would be entitled to half the estate, and um, Onan and Shelah would get 25% each. Well, if Ur is dead, who gets his portion? The son that Onan would hopefully have for him. But if Ur has no legal descendants, then the remaining two brothers get the estate 50-50. That could be a consideration. Finally, Onan is younger than Ur, presumably more immature than his deceased brother, but just as sinful. Refusing to live up to his responsibility, he's devised a scheme whereby he's going to keep up this physical relationship with, with Tamar, but he's going to do it in such a way as to mitigate the possibility of pregnancy. So he's getting what he wants out of this situation. He's taking advantage of a bad situation. His actions were wicked in the Lord's sight, and Onan, he dies too. Now, that might seem harsh, but I want you to consider the deception that Onan is using on on Tamar. He's making her think that he has these dutiful and noble intentions towards her. He's going to give her offspring, be her husband, be the father of her kids, but he has no intention of doing so. He's taking advantage of her by having a physical relationship with her with the possibility of no responsibility towards her. Onan dies, and Judah asks his daughter-in-law, Tamar, to go back home to remain as a widow until Shelah is ready for marriage. At that time, Shelah would have been too young. So Judah has seen two of his sons die after being married to Tamar. It's like, what's going on with her? What is this woman doing to them? The stress is killing them. She's bad luck or something. So he sends her away. Hey, don't call us. We'll call you when we're ready. Now, think of the position that that puts her in personally and emotionally and socially. Her family married her off thinking and hoping she's going to have one or two kids by now. She's a wife, mom, happily serving her family, married to the grandson of successful shepherd uh, Jacob in the line of Abraham, of the Hebrew people. She's been with this family maybe one or two years. She's already been widowed twice over. Is there something wrong with her? All she wants is to be a wife and mother. And she essentially had it, but it evaded her. So she goes back to her family, still a young woman, probably 17 or 18 years old. Um, and I know that because there's a 22-year span of time from the time that uh, they sell Joseph to the traders to the time that they see him again. So uh, this story happens in that time span. So how does she explain this to her family, her extended family, her community? Hey, Tamar, how's it going? Haven't seen you in a couple years. I thought you got married. Well, I did get married, but my husband died. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's terrible. What, what did you do then? Well, my brother-in-law married me, as is the custom, but he died too. It's so strange. I can't explain it. Oh, no, that's awful. What are you going to do now, Tamar? Well, I'm waiting for my last brother-in-law, Shayla, to grow up. He's only 14 now. He still has to learn the craft of shepherding, 
grow up a little bit more, maybe in a couple years. It's terrible, the position that this young woman has been put in. So don't think it's harsh for the Lord to judge Onan. Think of how basically this woman's life has been ruined. Point number three, family deception. Let's pick up reading in the next two sections, and we'll start at verse 11, read through verse 23. Uh, Verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her. And she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Enaim, at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we will be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Family deception. Besides what was going on with Tamar and Onan, there's there's two more instances of deception in this story, and we'll see them in this section. First, Judah has no intention to give Shelah to be married to Tamar. But he doesn't tell her straightforwardly, like, Honey, I'm sorry, this has not worked out. Shelah, he's just a boy. He probably wants to marry his Hebrew school sweetheart. Can't force him to marry you. You're a widow. Mourn for 30 days and move on with your life. You've treated our family well. You've been a good daughter-in-law. We will send you a wedding present. Have a nice life. But instead, he tells Tamar that she still has a future prospect in his family. He tells her to remain as a widow with the verbal agreement that she's going to marry Shelah. This is... In an intentionally vague agreement with no certain timetable. You could reasonably calculate your timetable. You could say, okay, Shayla's 14 now. When he's 18, he'll be ready for marriage, give or take a year. So come back in three and a half years and we'll talk. But the text says that Judah didn't want to do that. He feared that he would die like his brothers, so he deceived Tamar. And consequently, she goes back to be a widow, waiting for her young prince to grow up for a few years. Now, during that time, Judah's wife has died. He becomes a widower. He grieves his loss. He is comforted. And moving on with his life, it comes time for him to shear his sheep, to get their wool, to sell it, to make his living. 
So he has to go north to a place called Timnah, where his sheep shearers for hire would have been. I wanted to learn more about sheep shearing and found some YouTube videos. Do you know that they have world sheep shearing competitions? It's like all these um, nimble and athletic men from all over the European Union gather, and they take um, this big electric razor, twice as big as what the barber uses for haircuts, and they grab the sheep by the neck and they shave it bare. In about 20 seconds, the sheep ends up looking like a little chihuahua, and the judges judge their performance. Oh, 10 for form, you know. What a crazy competition. Of course, that's nothing like ancient sheep shearing. It would have been done with a set of two blades assembled like a pair of scissors, so a much more timely and laborious process. Um, apparently, it's a task here that's contracted out to specialists in the north, probably where they can uh, shear the sheep and negotiate a good deal for the wool. And if Judah was anything like his father, uh, his father Jacob was the master of raising sheep, there would have been many sheep to shear, and word would have gotten out that Judah is coming to town with all his herds, and he's going to do business, it's going to be great for the Canaanite economy. So word gets to Tamar. She realizes her father-in-law is going to be passing on a certain road, and she takes off her widow's garments, she puts on a veil, and puts on another garment with which she wraps herself up, and she goes and sits by where she expects him to pass by. And the text says in verse 14 that she saw that Shelah was grown up. Now, this doesn't mean that she visually observed him. He's not there, but that she realized in her mind, it dawned upon her that she must have said to herself, wait a minute, it's been four years. He was 14 when I left, so 15, 16, 17, 18. He's 18 by now, and they haven't called me. What's going on here? So Judah passes by. She's there with the veil. She's wrapped up. Um, he thinks that she's a prostitute because... Uh, of her veiled face. So remember that he has deceived her, now she's deceiving him. Prostitution has been called the world's oldest profession, and it was a cultural norm among the Canaanites. Prostitution was part of their religious rituals for seeking and celebrating fertility. And later, when Hira goes looking for her, he specifically asks the people for a religious prostitute, a cult prostitute. Verse 16, Judah propositions her. He says, let me come into you, but, meaning let me be physical with you, let me sleep with you, for he did not know, the text says, that she was his daughter-in-law. The author is emphasizing this because he wants us to know that there's deception taking place. She says to him, what will you give me? He says, I'll give you a young goat. I'm not going to give you one of these big woolly sheep, but don't worry, when I get home, I've got a cute little baby goat for you. Okay, she says, but I need a pledge, a down payment, some collateral until I get that little goat. She's been duped by him once before. She's still waiting for him to send the little son. How can she trust that he'll send a little goat? For a pledge, she wants his signet, his cord, his staff. His signet was a ring or a piece of metal that you'd use to make an imprint in wax or clay. Signet, think signature, an identifying marker. The cord would have been a decorative or utility cord to hold together clothing accessories. This word is used all over the description of the priest's, um, of the priest's attire. So it could have been like a belt or something that, um, or a cord with which the signet was attached. And finally, his staff or his rod, his walking stick or his shepherding stick. So he agrees. He gives her the pledges. He sleeps with her. And wouldn't you know it, she becomes pregnant. 
and she conceived. In the Bible, sometimes the most amazing words, and sometimes you know it's going to be the undoing of two lives because their sin is about to be exposed. Judah does not attempt to send, or he, he does attempt to send her the baby goat through his friend Ira, but he can't find her. The men of the place, um, he asks them, where's the cult prostitute? And they respond, there's no cult prostitute here. He goes back and reports this to Judah. And one detail that you need to realize here is that he's looking for a cult prostitute, a religious sex worker, basically. And I want to make the point that Judah believes in his mind that she's a cult prostitute that he's been with, which makes his actions all the more egregious for what is he doing, this Hebrew man great-grandson of Abraham, grandson of Isaac, son of Jacob. What is he doing engaging with the cult prostitute of the Canaanites? This shows you how far Judah has walked away from the Lord, from his covenant community, from the faith of his ancestors. Notice, when he needs to find her, he doesn't go by himself. He sends his Canaanite friend. He doesn't want to be going to that region looking for the specific prostitute, but another Canaanite, no big deal, right? What a terrible testimony Judah is of the Hebrews to this Canaanite man. And they don't find her, so they give up. But Judah knows that if people find out, he will look foolish. So she can keep the signet, the cords, the staff, but he has no idea what's about to happen. A word about deception. Deception is a huge theme in the book of Genesis. There's four instances in the book of Genesis where um, someone's garments are used for the purpose of deception. Rebekah puts the garments of Esau on Jacob to deceive her husband Isaac. Jacob takes Joseph's, um, Jacob's sons take Joseph's garment and present it to Jacob to deceive him into thinking that Joseph has been killed. Here Tamar wraps herself uh, and puts on a veil so her father-in-law thinks she's a prostitute. In the next chapter, Potiphar's wife grabs Joseph's garment and presents it to her husband to claim that Joseph has tried to violate her. So you see that as a theme in Genesis a few times. It's like, what's going on? Why so much deception in this family, starting with Jacob? Jacob deceives his dad, his sons deceive him. Uh, Laban, his uncle, deceives him, gives him uh, Leah instead of Rachel. Judah deceives his daughter-in-law, his daughter-in-law deceives him. Why so much deception in this family? I think there's two reasons for this. God sometimes visits the particular sins that people have committed back upon their own heads, either to judge them conclusively or to bring them to repentance. You're a deceiver and God gives you a taste of the very sin that you are skilled in doing to bring about repentance or destruction. Secondly, this deception is just a natural consequence of living a life of deception. You live with deception or lie or fudge the truth regularly. Your kids grow up watching that. Your family grows up watching that. And uh, when you expect truth and honesty and straightforwardness out of them, you don't get it as a result. And I think both are happening in the life of Judah. Last point, family deliverance. Let me read the last section for you, 24 through 30. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. 
Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, uh, when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread in his hand, saying, This one came out first, but as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Peretz. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So, verse 24, it's been three months now, and Tamar is showing the signs of being pregnant. That first trimester is a rough one, and as we find out at the end of the story, she's having twins. So she's showing, she has all the symptoms. Now, why is that a big deal for the Canaanites? We already know that this is a culture with legalized prostitution. So what does it matter if she's pregnant and not married? Well, there's two things. First of all, she's not a real cult prostitute. She's only dressed as one. Her actions would still be frowned upon, not because the Canaanites care about God's righteous standards, but because it would have been seen as an affront to her family, or in her case, to her in-laws. So despite their legal religious prostitution, this is still an action that's frowned upon. Secondly, you remember when Judah sent her back home, he told her to remain as a widow. So everyone knows she's not a cult prostitute. She is basically an engaged widow, and that's what everyone thinks. And she's staying like that until Shayla grows up. That's why word is sent to her father-in-law that she's been immoral, because she has obligations to them and they have obligations to her. The deal, or so everyone thinks, is that she gets to marry Shayla, but she's been immoral before her wedding, and she's pregnant. So Judah's outrage response is in verse 24. Bring her out and let her be burned. Now, in the law of Moses, which would not be written yet for another 400 years, the judgment for immorality or prostituting yourself, whether man or woman, was always death by stoning. But when it's the daughter of a priest, the law of Moses says it was the punishment was death by burning. So it was a much more severe punishment. But the law of Moses was not yet written, so we don't know exactly what's going on in Judah's head, but it's possible that he's expressing that he's so outraged, he's so disrespected by this, that he calls for the most severe punishment he could think of, let her be burned with fire. Never mind that three months ago, Judah was with what he thought was a cult prostitute, propositioning her, making a deal with her, sleeping with her, and then he and his friend go to look for her. Never, never, never mind that, right? Here we see the self-righteousness of Judah to preside over the condemnation of another person, to command their earthly destruction for the very same sin of which he has been a patron. This is the second person whose life Judah is about to destroy, the first one being his brother Joseph. So she's arrested, basically, and then we remember the pledges the signet, the cords, and the staff. She's kept them. She sends word to her father-in-law. Listen, as the saying goes, it takes two to tango. So the man that impregnated me owns these items. Do you recognize anything? Can you imagine the shock and the horror that would have come over Judah as the messengers from up north come with these items and present them to Judah? The signet, the cord, and the staff. No way. That was Tamar? I thought that was a cult prostitute. Oh, that's why Hira could not find the cult prostitute. 
because she tricked me. How could she, how could she do that? Wait, I tricked her too. I was supposed to give her Shayla. Oh no, I'm going to be a father again. When someone's sin is exposed, the world that they have created to accommodate their sin comes crashing down. And that is actually the best thing that can happen to Judah. Having our sin exposed, having to account for our wrongs, to face the humiliation thereof is a mercy of God. So when you could pass off your sin onto someone else and cling to a notion of being a decent enough person, you haven't comprehended God's mercy. If you can say, okay, I did some bad stuff, but things got crazy at home. Or I would have never given in to those impulses if she didn't trick me. Or I was mourning the loss of my wife. I wasn't thinking clearly, but she premeditated this whole thing. Or if my rotten sons had just done what they were supposed to, none of this would have ever happened. If you have an excuse for all your sins, you have no need for the mercy of God. If you can advocate for yourself and prove that your sins are a fruit of bad circumstances, which would have never otherwise happened if your circumstances were different, then you don't need God's mercy. But Judah shows us the best way one can respond when God arranges for us to be confronted and exposed in our sin. He says, she is more righteous than me. Here I am condemning her to death, but she's more righteous than me. I wronged her by not giving her to my son Shelah. My sin led to this mess. When King David was confronted by the prophet Nathan for his adultery with Bathsheba, Nathan tells him the story of a rich man who stole a poor man's little lamb. And David is outraged, and he says, that man must be put to death. And he gets exposed, for the prophet says, you are the man. And faced with his exposed sin, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51, David writes, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You know, the content of true faith is a little different in the Old and New Testament, for Judah did not completely know about the Lord Jesus Christ who would come and die for our sins and rise again the way we have complete knowledge of the Messiah. However, there are parallels we see between believers in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Here we specifically see that Judah confesses when confronted by his sin. Confessing and not covering or excusing his sin is a mark, I believe, of true repentance. In Psalm 32, David writes, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. But I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's the good news of the gospel. God forgives sin. Now, where else do we see, um, what else do we see that indicates to us that there's further fruit of repentance that God is producing in Judah's life? Well, Judah claims these kids as his own, for they are listed um, among every genealogy hereafter. Judah presumably takes care of Tamar, for those twins would have needed their mother, and it says he knew her no more, the implication being that he takes her into his home and cares for her as the mother of his kids, but they have boundaries in their relationship now. Judah goes back to his, to his family. He's among them when they face famine and they need to go to Egypt. Judah offers up his own life as a pledge to Jacob, his father, for Benjamin, 
uh, when they wanted to take Benjamin down to Egypt. Judah receives his father's prophetic blessing of prominence and kingship among his brothers. Jacob um, blesses and prophesies over him that the scepter will never depart from Judah. So the twins are born to Tamar. One pops out. They think he's the firstborn. They mark him with the thread, but the second one makes him his way out first instead. In keeping with the theme that God unexpectedly favors the younger over the older, and it's through Perez that the Messiah will come. I heard a pastor once say that nobody gets to pick their ancestors except for the Lord Jesus. If you're the Lord Jesus, then you could pick all your ancestors. So when we look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1, we find all of these characters in his lineage. In Matthew 1, um, verse 2 to 3, we see Judah and Tamar and Perez all in the line of the Messiah. Why? Why would the Lord pick such bad people to be his earthly ancestors? Don't we all have that relative or that ancestor that we prefer not to be associated with? But in the lineage of Christ, Judah, Tamar, and Perez are included. Perez, no fault of his own, but he was the product of the union where his dad thought his mom, who was also his daughter-in-law, was a prostitute, and she dressed up as one to make him think that. Those people are in the genealogy of the Messiah. Why? Why is that there? I believe it's there to show us that God is gracious. When I say that he's gracious, I don't mean that we do something bad and God tolerates it or overlooks it or disregards it. Grace is the posture of God towards vile sinners and hopeless sinners, sinners who deserve hell, sinners who have no resources whereby they might make themselves acceptable to God. God forgives them. He makes them alive. He welcomes them. He adopts them. He makes them his very own. God does so because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the line of Abraham, of the line of Isaac, of the line of Jacob, of the line of Judah, of the line of Perez, of the line of David, to live righteously without sin and to die on behalf of his people. Christ died. He was buried and he rose again the third day. Take away our sins. God sends his son to die. He gives up his son to adopt us as sons and daughters. We become the family of God. In this story, we also see the sovereignty of God over sin, for God works out his plan of redemption using the sinful actions of sinful people, for the line of Messiah comes through Perez, the son of Judah and Tamar. And one last thing I'll point out is that you would expect that a good, upstanding, godly man like Joseph should be in the line of the Messiah. For Joseph is steadfast and faithful. A woman propositions him, and he flees from her. He says, how can I do this thing against my master? He's nothing like his older brother Judah. But Judah, rather, is sovereignly placed in the line of the Messiah by the Lord. So we can have a lesson on the grace of God and the deliverance of God. Why And why are Canaanite Tamar and Rahab and Moabite Ruth in the Messiah's line? It's so that we can know that the plan of God has always been to redeem all the peoples of the world through Jesus Christ. In fact, Joseph, though sold, though imprisoned, though forgotten, is used in the sovereign plan of God to save and to deliver and to forgive his wretched brothers, like Judah. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. No matter if you were raised with the knowledge of God but sinned grievously and walked away from the Lord for decades, like Judah, 
the most merciful thing that God can do is to confront our sin and to create repentance and faith in our hearts. May the Lord bring back the wayward to himself, and may he keep the way of the righteous. Let's pray.